The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. How do you do? I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm someone who wandered into his house one day. Mark Hadley, welcome to episode 94 of The Big Picture for the week beginning February 12. Coming up on today's show... Should we engage with Channel 7's new reality show, Bright and Prejudice? Casey Affleck is counting Oscars in Manchester by the sea. And Martin Scorsese delivers an intense look at the Christian faith under fire in silence. Mate, I'm looking forward to you talking about science later in the show. Science is an epic film. I hope people hang around for that. I, honestly, I, I think it's going to be, well, it's not just long, it's deep. And greetings to you, Sam Robinson. How are you going? Oh, so well, lads. Good to you, be back in the chair again. It certainly is. Nice to see you. I've got to say, you uh, we've torn you away from a kid's birthday party, Ben. Uh, you have, mate. Uh, my daughter, Elodie, turned two today. Happy birthday again, Yay. Elodie. Like, I'm sure she's up and listening to this. She listens to Dad every week. Like, Did you hang something up and stick it. pins in it? Loves it. It's what? Like, Elodie, what do you mean? What? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> do people still do that at kids' parties? Like, you know, they blindfold them, give them sharp implements and tell them to wander around they the do. house? I saw that being played at a one-year-old's birthday party last year. I thought that was a little bit ambitious. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm more, I, <laughs> and it worked out all right in the end. It worked out all right. <laughs> no one was hurt. <laughs> right. Well, let's cut to the chase and get into uh, what we're watching this week. What's out in film, Ben? Fences opened at cinemas last Thursday, gentlemen. This is Denzel Washington's latest film. He's starring in it and he's directed it. It's based on a stage play, nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars. And it's about the ingrained and generational effects of racism. Mark will be reviewing that on the show next week. So don't rush out and see it right now. Wait for the show wait next for week. The opinion. And wait for the opinion of Mark Hadley. <laughs> uh, what's also coming at cinemas next Thursday is a little movie called The Great War. Oh, which stars Matt Damon in a Chinese Hollywood co-production. It's like... Matt Damon, you say? Matt Damon. It's like alternate facts about why the Great... <laughs> thank you. About why the Great Wall of China was built allegedly to keep monsters out. That famous Asian actor, Matt Damon. That famous Asian actor. This film's already been accused of whitewashing history with <laughs> Damon being in it, let alone the thing about the monsters, um, and let, let alone the stuff going on with Trump and wall plans mm. and all that sort of thing. It's very... I'm not really sure how Great Wall's going to go. It's, really? It's, it's appropriate for our time. It really is. <laughs> so that movie will be huge. <laughs> What's out in the small screen? Okay, well, look, this week on the ABC, Tuesday 14th, in fact, you can join Hedge the popular host of Good Game in her own exploration of the cosplay world in How to Be a Fan with Hex. Cosplay, or costume play, if you don't know it, was once the domain of only extreme fans. You know, the idea you dress up like famous Mm-mm. characters and things, yep, and stuff yep. like that. There's usually jokey names you can call those people, but I won't. Instead, <laughs> I'll just keep going with what costume play world will I cosplay. Re- will I reveal at this point that my family are cosplaying at the next conference we're going to? Anyway, now <laughs> it's a global phenomenon celebrated by millions, including my family, and Hex explores this world by cosplaying as one of the fav- her favourite video game characters. So you can check it out on the ABC uh, this Tuesday. And also on the ABC this week on Thursday, episode two, or you know, basically we fell between the programs who so couldn't announce episode one, but episode two of Dream Gardens. Dream now, Gardens? This is the extent of where we go with you know, our love affair with developing our homes and things like that. So it's an eight-part series which began the week before and asked the question, can changing your backyard change your life? Okay, so it's hosted by Michael McCoy, one of Australia's leading landscape designers, and each episode follows the transformation of a garden and the family behind it, okay? So, you know, in that respect, it's kind of like Burke's Backyard, but for ABC viewers. For Uh, those who still remember Burke's Backyard. There you go. But watch as ordinary Australians battle inclement weather. Absent tradies, shifting visions. Is this starting to sound like, you know, house home rules and stuff like that? Yeah. Budget blowouts, unforeseen obstacles to discover their ultimate home among the gum trees. Sam, are you going to be tuning in for that? I hope they shot it before summer because it's been a hot one and I don't think the Dream Gardens will be as dreamy. No, I would like moment. to watch people go through 40 degree heat working on their garden. <laughs> That's television. Okay. All right. Well, enough about Dream Gardens. What about some entertainment news? Now, here's a, a dream movie that I know you guys have been um, just waiting for. The announcement of the <laughs> sequel to the 2011 animated film Nomeo and Juliet, which a lot of other people didn't really see, starring the voice of James McAvoy and oh, Emily I Blunt. <laughs> there is a sequel called Sherlock Gnomes. No. Sherlock Gnomes, oh. that is in production. It's going to come out sometime in the future. Johnny Depp is providing a voice, and again, Elton John is doing the soundtrack. <laughs> Sherlock Gnomes. <laughs> I Don't can, say you weren't told. No, I can top that. Uh, in case you have been living under a rock, or possibly a Death Star for that matter, <laughs> the next Star Wars <laughs> title has been announced. Drum roll, please. 
Yeah, well, that'll yeah, do. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't queue it up in time. <laughs> it's, the, it's Star Wars The Last Jedi. Now, I find this personally highly unlikely. Given the entire franchise is built around the Force, so this is having the last Jedi in a film that is, you know, where they predicted they're going to have twenty or thirty extra Mm. Star Wars films. I'm kind of, but anyway, let's go with it. It's the latest Skywalker saga. It's executively produced by J.J. Abrams, scheduled for release in Australia on December 14 this year. I'm so excited because there are only 294 sleeps left, (laughs) and I'll be ticking them off at our house. All right. Well, it's time for some true or false. Yep. So. there will be some alternative facts that I'm about to bring out, but one of them will actually prove to be true. So, true or false this week, dedicating to great director Martin Scorsese. Mark will be speaking about his latest film, Silence, later in the program. To get us there, Martin Scorsese is a huge fan of British comedy. You may not have known that, but that is true. He's a huge fan of British comedy. Which one of his favourite is his favourite of all time? Is it A, Dad's Army, B, Black Adder, or C, Faulty Towers. It's been really hard not to inject my favourite uh, those three. <laughs> yeah, like... but the, the question was Martin yeah, Scorsese. Yeah. So one of those is true. Dad's Army, Black Adder, or Faulty Towers. Which is Martin Scorsese's favourite British comedy? Find out after we talk about this. Well, every year, apparently the same thing happens to Ben and a whole lot of us Australians. We end up watching the tennis and we get bombarded with advertising for Channel 7's current programs, mm-hmm. uh, which are now one of those is Bride and Prejudice. Now, Channel 7 managed to get Ben to watch this show, <laughs> I believe. It did. They really convinced me. <laughs> and this, they put it on. Uh, this reality show covers engaged couples confronting the prejudice of their parents. I think they need to travel and have some freedom. I think they need to see the world and see other people and whether that's together or separate, I'm not sure, but they need to lighten up and relax and stop being so intense. I want you to get married. You take on a wife. Then I'm not special in your life anymore. Yes, you are. You always be a part of my life. Of course you will. She doesn't own him. I do. If anyone owns him, I do. I'm hoping that he'll wake up to himself. Can we honestly go any further with reality television? I I guess, you know, I thought we'd scrape the bottom of the barrel with married at first sight, and now we're just trying to get people married who will offend other people? I thought that uh, seven-year switch that we talked about last year was scraping the bottom oh, of the barrel. Too, uh, you yeah. can go back to bigpicturewebsite.com, check out our review of that. Uh, to answer your question, can we go any further with reality TV, Mark? I would have to answer yes, just based on the <laughs> fact that people continuing to push the boundaries of reality TV. Who knows where it's going to go? Uh, but yes, on this occasion... Uh, yeah, the barrel is, is being scraped, I think. This is pretty gut-wrenching and shocking TV, but a lot of it's that kind of awkward, I don't know why you're doing this TV, as opposed to being somehow deeper or more insightful or moving. Kind television. of those moments where you wish the camera would turn away. Because mm-hmm. it's just, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, did it seem as though they targeted minorities really, just for the sensational factor. I've seen some of the promos, and, you know, there are gay couples as such, but are they really just going for the shock? Or yeah, they- yeah, I, I, I think, I think so. That seems to be the whole like reason that the show exists, and, and probably because someone was sitting around and proposing shows. What can we do? What can we do? Bright and prejudice. That's mm. a catchy pun. How can we create a TV show out of that? Well, we better find some prejudice. How's what's the best way of doing that? Well, let's find some minority groups, uh, such as a homosexual couple, or um, one of the couples in the show is a, 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 a Russian, a Russian lady marrying an Indian guy. They're both Australian, and the parents are object. The Russian lady's parent is object. Mum is objecting to that because he's Indian. And then there's another couple that uh, they're very young and the mother of the son the, her son she objects to him marrying an 18 year old even though that's legal and fine but she just objected the fact that they're, they're young so there's all these different types of minorities I can suppose I, can I just jump in there for a second mm-hmm. it's like one person's prejudice doesn't seem to be another person's right I mean the idea that they are very young and then you say what one of them is 18 what's the other one it's 15 yeah or... no no 20 and 18 20 so, and 18 is very young as yeah, far as yeah. Channel 7 so concerned. one of the odd things about the show is that you do get the clash of beliefs and it's a bit of a double-edged sword of belief that is actually playing out in Bright and Prejudice so as much as I found it kind of difficult to watch not that in not terribly engaging and really quite squeamish because you're seeing people's personal like issues being hung out to dry in front of the entire nation 
seemingly just for the for entertainment's sake. Mm. Uh, but what the show I think really was raising is we live in in a in a society that uh, claims that everyone can believe whatever they want to believe. But as soon as someone believes something that you don't think they should believe in, well then we've got issues. So what are you going to do then? You can we either allow people to believe what they want to believe or we don't. And I think this show gets kind of stuck a little bit in working out which side it's actually for. So they're saying that anyone can get married on this show or denying marriage is an infringement on someone's rights? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So the the show is like trying not to, but it definitely falls on the side of love will conquer all. And, or should. And, should. Or should. And, and people should be... Consenting adults, whoever you are, should be able to marry whoever you want to marry. And uh, one of the lines of the show in the promos is, will prejudice tear these couples apart? So the show is definitely for like love at all cost and, you know, like but but given we're in a time in Australia and around the world in different places where the definition of marriage is is being reconsidered and debated and sometimes quite hostilely, this show is definitely wading into that territory. It's not hugely flying the flag for change the laws, but it's definitely advocating on that side. But what it raised in me, though, is more the question of motivation of people in the show. So you can have your discussion about whether the definition of marriage should change, but I think a discussion about pride, pride and prejudice and some of these reality shows like it is what motivates people to be part of these, particularly the couples that are putting, uh, asking their parents to be on camera and then getting into these uh, collisions of belief on camera, seemingly for our own entertainment, uh, it reminded me of like Jesus talking in Mark 7 about how things from come out of our heart and reveal where we're truly at. And, you know, kind of what, no, it's not about what things we take in, but it's what comes out of us that really reveals where we're coming from. It's a bit of a cracker, I must say. I watched it. It was kind of disturbing. Yeah. But that said, you know, maybe you've got better things to do with your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, and better things to talk about is Martin Scorsese and his love for British comedy. So I posed this true or false statement to you earlier. What's the correct answer? Is Martin Scorsese's favorite British comedy of all time, Dad's Army, Black Adder or Faulty Towers? I want it to be B. I want, I want it to be C. Oh, I want it to be Blackadder, and you're going for Faulty Towers. Mm-hmm. Sam, you are correct. Faulty yes. Towers. And Martin Scorsese describes the very famous Faulty Towers episode, The Germans, as so tasteless, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Martin. All right. Well, coming up on The Big Picture, we predict one of the big winners at the Oscars, and we also play a cat song. And then later in the show, one of the year's most challenging and memorable movies, Silence. Welcome back to the show. We were sniffing around for a song for this week's soundtrack segment and noticed that this Thursday saw the release of a street cat named Bob. It's a 2016 British feel-good family film directed by Rod Roger Spottiswood about how James Bowen, this busker and recovering drug addict, has his life transformed when he meets a stray ginger cat. That's a true story, right? Cue the ah. Oh, oh, you know, it's lovely. Yeah. Okay, and the film stars Luke Treadway, Ruta Gedmintis. I don't even know how to say that. Ruta Gedmintis. Joanne Froggart, Anthony Head, and a bunch of other people who have strange names, but Bob the Cat himself is also in it. The Cat's playing himself. So he thought to himself, a film about a busker. Great, that's perfect for soundtrack. And then I listened to the soundtrack. <laughs> now, <laughs> this film is far too depressing to play on a beautiful Sunday night. I've just got to say, it's just so melancholic. So we thought we'd take a very, very, very long tangential leap and play you an uplifting song by another great cat. Cue.
Yeah, I told you it was a, st- a long, long leap from a street cat named Bob, but aren't you pleased we made it? That's Remember the Days of the Old School Yard by Cat Stevens. Ah, uh, uh, Cat see Stevens. Where I there. Mm. Well, released in 1977, <laughs> this song was the last song that Cat Stevens actually ever wrote before he gave up music. Okay, because he actually gave up music to pursue his faith. In this case, it was uh, Islam. He uh, he really decided that was more important, and I can kind of respect that decision. But then Cat Stevens' songs have basically peppered media productions all over the place, from everything from The Simpsons to West Wing, uh, and almost famous to Remember the Titans. So go see a street cat named Bob. Go listen to Cat Stevens. Well, lads, we should be wearing tuxedos because it is award season at the moment, just two weeks until the Oscars. Two weeks? Yeah, looking forward to that very looking much. Looking forward to seeing you there. Well, Casey <laughs> Affleck... <laughs> you had an invite, did you? You did, didn't you? No. You're more important than me. No, oh, can't gosh. afford the flight over. Uh, Casey Affleck scored the Golden Globe for Best Actor last month for his lead turn in searing drama Manchester by the Sea. And for our first Now Showing segment this week... Ben reports on this sorrowful story of parenting, guilt, and whether there are some things you just can't get over. I don't understand. Which part are you having trouble with? Well, I can't be his guardian. Well, your brother provided for your nephew's upkeep. I think the idea was that you would relocate. Relocate to where? Well, if you look, it was my impression that you'd spent a lot of time here. I swear. I'm just a backup. Lee, nobody can appreciate what you've been through. And if you really feel you can't take this on, you know, that's your right. So Casey Affleck is about to turn in a uh, performance which will probably earn him some form of kudos, awards or such. Before we get on to the real question, let's get to the heart of it. How much does his brother hate him now? <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean, Ben Affleck? Can, can you imagine just how uncomfortable Christmas dinners would be if he picks up the Oscar and Ben <laughs> Affleck is like, yeah, well, I did... Batman. <laughs> but they can compare Oscars because Ben Affleck did win an Oscar years ago for writing Goodwill Hunting. So there are mm. already Oscars in the Affleck family, which you would know well, Mark, being such a massive fan of Ben Affleck. Mm. Uh, I think Casey Affleck will win Best Actor Oscar this year for Manchester by the Sea. He did pick up Golden Globe the other week. He is fantastic as Lee Chandler in Manchester by the Sea. He's this guy we meet uh, fixing people's toilets and other things around their house. He's a janitor in a block of flats. He lives this kind of nothing existence he doesn't seem to have a family just by himself he's his loner drifter drinking a lot getting into fights just not really going anywhere then he gets whisked back to his hometown which is this town of manchester in massachusetts up north of boston because uh, his brother dies and that's not a, that's not a spoiler they tell that you tell you that in the trailer because what happens in manchester by the sea the kind of turning point of it is him being uh, asked to be by his brother's will to be the guardian of his dead brother's son his nephew Patrick and from there Manchester by the Sea just becomes increasingly increasingly involved particularly around Cassie Affleck's performance as Lee so is that what it is like is it a, a mentoring relationship or a friendship or a parenting what sort of relationship are we dealing with here it's kind of all of the above and not that as well so I think for anyone who's seen the trailer and was a bit turned off of like oh well this is just going to be some kind of mentor movie mm. don't think that Instead, think that you're going to be in for one of the most intense dramas around at the moment. Uh, I think the memorable thing about writer-director Kenneth Lonigan's film is that he incorporates mentoring, parenting, friendship, and all kinds of other things into an amazing observation of one self-loathing and grief-stricken bloke, which is Lee. And Casey Affleck is amazing on screen all the way through for a guy who with words or not, is able to convey the kind of torment that's going on inside Lee. And you get to discover a lot of that as Manchester by the Sea plays out. So this is a, this is a sort of film that to know less about it is better. And particularly about Lee's past, which is haunting him like you wouldn't believe until you actually find out why. And then you come to understand better why he's doing what he's doing. And the way Casey Affleck intimates that, lets you know that on screen is just superb. Well, it sounds like Lee's stuck in his past. Is this film suggesting that there are things in life that you just cannot get over? Yeah. Yeah. Um, As much as there's a lot going on here, uh, like shared grief between the character of Lee and his nephew Patrick, who's played very well by Lucas Hedges, as, as much as you get them kind of in the same kind of world of grief, but they're sort of unable to share it, particularly because of where Lee is at, A very strong thing that's going on underneath Manchester by the Sea is this idea that becomes more and more to the fore as it goes along, is that there are some things in life that can happen to you that you just cannot 
get past like whether it's something that's induced grief or guilt or there's just some other sin or something's gone wrong in your life you just won't be able to get past it like like as a viewer i find that very challenging to watch people on screen who are so struck by things in their life and it's a bit of a freebie for a christian viewer to be watching that and thinking about all the claims that Jesus made about coming into the world and paying for the sins of the world, which you can read about in 1 John 2 and other places in the Bible. You learn all these things about Jesus and all this talk about Jesus can actually take these things from you, which doesn't change what's happened in your life. It doesn't make things better necessarily. It doesn't, it's, like, it's not a magic, it's not a razor. Yeah, do you think that's like a common mistake that Christians make, the idea that um, Jesus pays for sin, but people forget sometimes that the consequences of sin still follow us that's around. That's exactly right. And I think that's why some people can end up rejecting Jesus because just think, well, he's going to take it on and then like my life's going to be perfect. I'm going to be fixed. But that's not necessarily, that's not really what he's saying. Like What he's saying is he's just paid for that. And then you need to look into more what that actually means. Manchester by the Sea is a freebie for Christians to talk about what the difference Jesus can make because Manchester by the Sea so vividly and painfully and harrowingly demonstrates a person who refuses to believe that what has happened to them in the past they can let go of. And there's all kinds of things swirling around in Lee from self-punishment to self-loathing that is just amazing to watch and to make you reconsider, is it actually possible to move on in your life? So Manchester by the Sea is not a laugh-out-loud movie you go see on Friday nights, but it is one of the best adult dramas going around at the moment. All right, Manchester by the Sea stars Casey Affleck, Michelle Williams, Kyle Chandler and Lucas Hedges. It's now screening in cinemas and is rated MA15 plus for some strong coarse language. And there are also some uh, teen sex scenes which might trouble some viewers. Yeah, and really needless. I don't know why they bothered to put those in. Quickly, gentlemen, over at insights.uca.org.au, Insights, big supporter of the big picture. You can go and read Russ Matthews' reviews of plenty of awards season movies. Russ has covered everything from La La Land to Lion, Arrival, Hacksaw Ridge, and Fences. Insights.uca.org.au for those reviews. All right, coming up on The Big Picture, an expert explains just how damaging Fifty Shades Darker actually is. And Mark tells us why Martin Scorsese's silence is an incredible portrait of Christian persecution, doubt and strong faith. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Well, another release this week that's generating lots of noise alongside of silence is the sex-driven sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey titled Fifty Shades Darker. Uh, <laughs> please, please, Ben, reserve yeah, judgment. Right. Yes, I mean, wait. please, please go on. on one second. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this earnest but ultimately titillating fantasy is the next instalment in heroine Anastasia's struggles as she fights to come to terms with her lover Christian sadomasochistic needs. Yeah, maybe you should have groaned. That's, oh, right. that's where you groan. Uh. Well, the first film sold a distressing amount of tickets around the world, and the sequel represents a further normalisation of sexual activity that used to keep be considered perverse. So Mark headed off to talk to sexologist and Sydney academic Dr Patricia Wirakoon to ask if it's okay to watch so long as you don't take it home. I'm speaking to Dr. Pat, and Dr. Pat, we go way back. We've done television series. We've done all sorts of things together. It's great to see you again. It's great to be with you, Mark. Yes, we do go a long way back. I want to ask about Fifty Shades Darker. There are a lot of issues that are raised by the film, and you as a professional sexologist, if you were speaking to somebody about this, what are some of the things that would leap out that you'd want to mention to them? I'd like to point out that there are issues about relationships, especially female role models. For firstly, relationships and female role models. Secondly, I'd like to point out to them what it says about love. And thirdly, I'd like to talk to them about what it says about sex. So if you're starting with relationships, what are the role models we are seeing there for women that are portrayed as sexy and powerful but are actually deviant and unhealthy? For instance, there's a mother who's a sort of crack-addicted prostitute. There's the woman who abused this boy, Christian, when he was 15. There's an ex-submissive. And then there's... Anna, who apparently thinks of herself as this virtuous saviour of the bad boy. Those are really poor, unhealthy role models for women. 
The second thing I'd like to point out to young people especially is what this movie is teaching us about love versus what we learn about love from the word of God and from watching Christian couples married or dating. You see the movie teaches us that love means you look at someone and think how can I get something from you even if it means abusing you or love means I have to be your savior in some way even if that means I have to you know withstand whatever abuse you hand out to me now as we see it in the word of god and in our christian relationship love is about giving to the other what you know is good and building up the other and thirdly about sex When it comes to sex in the movie we see sex portrayed in behaviors that a few years ago to us sexologists would have been called a fetish or even a deviance and now is portrayed as normal you see what we are doing is we are taking pleasure of sex and then putting side by side the pain of abusive behavior now when you keep using those two together they blend and after a while your brain can't make out the difference and that's a dangerous thing younger people whose brains are developing are being subject to seeing violence as sexy So you start to make something that you're just watching on the screen uh, appear as normal. Do you think that's happening more and more? You only have to walk into a library and look at the books that are out there. Even the youngest children can borrow explicit erotica passing off as literature. And so we are continuously feeding children with videos and movies and books that normalize what we would call fetishist deviant behavior so it's not just a fun trip to the pictures anymore it sounds like brain surgery brain rewiring is what we would call it It's a period of history that a few of us know much about and thanks to Martin Scorsese it's about to become a time that few of us will ever forget. This week the benchmark director will unveil his latest feature an intense consideration of the persecution of Japanese Christians in feudal Japan. Silence is a brutal consideration of what it means to hold on to Christ in the face of all manner of torture and death. It's also a question, does God have anything to say to his suffering servants? Don't speak to me. You have no right to speak to me. Oh, I do. Because you are just like me. You see Jesus in Gethsemane and believe your trial is the same as his. Those five in the pit are suffering too, just like Jesus, but they don't have your pride. They would never compare themselves to Jesus. Do you have the right to make them suffer? I heard the cries of suffering in this same cell, and I acted. You excuse yourself. You excuse yourself. That is the spirit of darkness. <laughs> And what would you do for them? Pray and get what in return? Only more suffering. A suffering only you can end. Oh. Not God. <laughs> I pray too, Rodriguez. It doesn't help. Silence is set in the 16th century of Japan, 10 years after Christianity has been outlawed and hundreds of thousands tortured and executed, including the priests who went there to spread the gospel in the first place. Uh, Andrew Garfield stars as Rodriguez, this young Jesuit who's sent to investigate the rumours that one of the greats of the church, Father Ferreira, who's played by Liam Neeson, has betrayed his faith and is now helping the Japanese to dig up what's left of the church and, and do away with it. Uh, he's accompanied by Father Garpe, who's played by Adam Driver, no no other than uh, the next Sith Lord and their joint mission is to give comfort to whatever surviving Christians they can find Japan the, the Japan that they arrive in is basically a terror state for persecuted believers it's mm. kind of like an ancient version of Nazi Germany so to speak mm. where you know the believers are on trial the film is actually based on a really famous book by a Japanese author called Shusaku Endo uh, it's called Silence obviously and Martin Scorsese was obsessed with the book uh, for more than two 
two decades he was thinking about making this film. So this is actually like a culmination of a lifelong dream for him. Uh, it's also uh, something of a spiritual journey for Martin Scorsese. Most people don't know that Scorsese actually studied in a seminary to become a priest and then decided instead to go off and become a movie maker. Oh, really? Because yeah, a yeah. lot of his movies, heaps of his movies, include a lot of particularly Catholic comments or characters or, or tradition got, or rituals. Or you've got examination of the Christian story itself, like in The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. So he's created this story that asks some very big questions about the seeming silence of God when his servants are persecuted. Mark, there are so many things we could talk about with silence. There's an amazing film I saw it as well. It's almost hard to work out which way to go with it. But one of the things that struck me about the film is that at many points in silence, there's this suggestion that transplanting Christianity isn't really a successful thing, as in it can't actually be done in some places. You couldn't possibly bring Christianity to certain countries and to certain people. Yeah, it's like a really modern argument that's being placed inside of, of an ancient story, if you like, where people are saying uh, Japan is a swamp. So the Japanese people say, we're not a place where your faith is going to grow. Uh, and in fact, they're actually getting at something that's really quite accurate. I mean, Japan is one of the hardest places to be a missionary even today. Uh, Christianity is a very small minority. It's not as if they can't understand it. But there's a cultural situation going on. Thousands of years of Japanese culture have been shaped by the idea of the floating world, this idea that all things are passing away. There's a veneration of nature, but there's not much veneration of anything that happens afterwards. You just celebrate the moment of life that you're in. What's veneration? Well, veneration is like the idea of, of holding up or worshipping an idea. Right, right. Okay, and so the Japanese are just captured by the idea that there is nothing but this life. So it's driven a lot of art and beauty in their society, but it's also driven um, a, a suppression of any idea of what to do next. So the gospel comes along talking about saving you for eternity well if you don't believe in an eternity there's no salvation to worry about mm. but the weird thing about christianity is it sits above that it doesn't say that um you know well this is a message for jews or this is a message for christian people it actually says this is a true a truth about life uh, and if you don't understand it, you need to actually get a bigger picture of life itself. Mm. And so the film deals with that. It, it, there's a great arguments going on. I know why. There's you a really key it, exchange yeah. between uh, Andrew Garfield's character and some Japanese officials along those lines about whether truth is universal or whether it just does not apply in certain parts. So you could talk about that for hours. You could also talk about yeah. how the priests handle the idea of denial, which is huge, running through silence. Is it better to stay silent if it saves your life? Is like a kind of critical idea, not just running through it, but confronting many of the characters, including these Jesuit priests who are from Portugal, aren't they? That's where they've been imported from. Yeah, what do you think the film is saying about all those sort of things? Idea of denial and is it better to stay silent? It's one of those moments where the film is going to divide our audiences well and truly. Uh, I feel like Christians are going to go in and watch silence and be really challenged by the idea of should you be silent or not? Um, and then non-Christians are going to go in and look at the film and go, it would be really challenged by the idea that Christians would believe death is preferable to being silent. I'd love to you know. talk to more people who don't follow Jesus who go and see silence because I think Martin Scorsese's done a pretty impressive job of not trying to make it accessible to people. If you don't know a lot about Christianity, about Christian traditions and beliefs and what that will lead to, it might be very difficult to understand some of silence. You might be baffled well, by what's being, going on. I think you're being generous. I think if you're a non-Christian, you go see, you'll see Christianity as nutters is the idea that <laughs> but you I think would... it upholds them better than nutters don't oh, you it, think? it does but, but there's a passion that can't be understood uh, I, I guess outside mm. of the relationship with Christ yep. and that's what the Christian basically has to deal with is uh, is it a bigger issue to uh, survive or is it a bigger you know, and maybe go on to preach to other people and in fact you know do the works of Christ or is it a bigger issue to stand by Christ and your beliefs in a public way? Mm. Even that, in the face of intense persecution coming from the state, in this case, Japanese officials trying to crush Christianity by publicly getting people to reject Jesus and their faith. And let's not pretend that this is an easy issue to decide, because in this very day, you've got people who are choosing, say, in Iran, for example, to... Um, declare their faith or not declare their faith. And I have a respect for people who make the decision on either side. I must, I can't be silent. And on people who say, I think this is an appropriate time not to talk. Uh, and so you've got those, both sides really represented in silence as a film. What about the silence of God in this film? Is it is it proof that God maybe isn't involved in our sufferings for people watching this film? Well, I think that's the ultimate question the film tries to deal with, is the idea is, does God really care? What does God's silence mean? Because we, you know, it's not as if you can, I mean, I don't want to sort of 
prevent God from behaving the way that he might choose to behave. But it's not as if the common experience is people crying out to God, they're suffering in a, and a voice booming from heaven. Mm. And in fact, Rodriguez is, is facing not just his suffering, but particularly watching the suffering of others mm-hmm. and saying, why, God, aren't you doing something? Uh, and in fact, that continues until he realizes a really important point, that the silence of God does not necessarily mean that God is not acting. Okay, so Rodriguez realizes as the film goes on that God might not be saying anything more than he has always said about suffering, but he is still there. Uh, and this is the interesting presentation. You know, there's a thing, Shusaka Endo, you remember the guy who actually uh, wrote the, wrote the, the book? book? Yep. Okay, he actually said that the way to appeal to the Japanese mind about the gospel is not to appeal as a father figure, you know, presenting God as a father figure, telling people, you know, how they should behave, but as a mother figure who is alongside of people in their struggles, they would understand that culturally better. And I think that's what comes out strongly in the film. That You know, you might say it's a twisting of the whole character of God, but in this case it's really clear that god is with us in suffering and that is how he speaks so mark i'm hearing you say this is great and people should go and see it yeah it is a film that is going to take a little bit of commitment on your part but you are going to be rewarded for for a start it's very long Okay, so it's a long film and it's about a a period in which you're going to be struggling to understand. But that's not any reason not to engage. In fact, it's something I think we really should engage with. Silence is rated MA15 plus for strong violence. and Mm, It's it's pretty brutal and intense at some times. Yeah, Yeah. and it's also very long, 161 minutes. So Mm. you have been warned about that as well. Uh, But you'll be sharing the film with Adam Driver, Liam Neeson and Andrew Garfield and opens uh, next Thursday, February 16th. Now, coming up on The Big Picture, what the Bible itself has to say about denial and the top five most provocative Christian movies you could ever dare to see. Welcome back. Well, before the break, we heard Mark's uh, now showing review of Silence. And if you missed it, podcast it. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can grab it on the podcast and hear his gushing report. (laughs) There were tears all over the floor. There was definite gush. There was. There Mm -hmm. was. Oh, it was amazing. Well, Silence deals intensely with the troubling topic of Christians being tortured to give up their faith. So we asked Big Picture Regular and Bible Society CEO Greg Clark to fill us in on what the Bible has to say on the subject of denial. Jesus was describing how his life was likely to end to his disciples. And he said, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. That's from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26, near the end of Jesus' life. You say you love me tonight, but before dawn you will have abandoned me. What a terrible prediction that Jesus made to his dear friend Peter. And how completely Peter made that prediction come true. For that's exactly what he did. He lied to some potentially dangerous strangers about his connection to Jesus. And he did it three times. So much for being willing to die with him. This well-known passage from the Gospels rips at the hearts of Christians everywhere. Why? Because we know we're just like Peter. The new year is always a popular time for attempts at self-denial, actually. We make promises to deny ourselves chocolate for January, making sure our denial period is finished in time for Easter. And we dedicate ourselves in petty and serious ways, trying to be dedicated to whatever cause we claim, be it weight loss or getting fit or saving money. But almost always we fail. They say 95% of diets fail to keep the weight off for more than five years. And can I say that's not very encouraging... We find it so hard to stay committed, even when we believe deeply in the cause. The bottom line is that if you are a Christian, you will deny Christ in one way or another, in big ways or small, because you're a flawed human being, and Christ was God incarnate. You're going to fall short of true dedication to him and his teaching in all sorts of ways. It just will happen. And if you are not a Christian as you listen to this, I hope you're getting the message that Christians aren't better than other people and your own sense of failing should never stop you coming to Jesus and seeing what he has to offer. But failing is not the end. Think about how Peter reacted after the cock crowed. When he fell short, he was grief-stricken and he dedicated his life to promoting the message of Jesus in whatever circumstances he found himself. In the end, he did in fact keep his word and died at the hands of Emperor Nero in Rome, crucified, just like the great man of God he said he wouldn't deny. That's not a bad comeback, 
In fact, it's the kind of response you can crow about. Greg Clark from Bible Society Australia. Thanks again for always giving those sort of insights. Mm-hmm. Love a guy who can dig that deep into the Bible. Yeah. Look, um, speaking of digging deeply into the Bible, Eternity News will be featuring a lot of silence content this week to time itself out with the film, including an interview with American-Japanese Christian Makoto Fujimura. Now, he's an artist whose book Silence and Beauty describes his personal response to the novel Silence, as well as the reflection on Japanese and Western Christianity. Fascinating ideas. He shares his thoughts on Scorsese's version of Silence the Film versus Silence the Book and why the concept of Christians struggling with faith has captured him as a Christian. that time everyone top five time my we favorite. finally reached the peak of the show it is it is we climbed the mountain here we are looking down at, at what is going to be an exciting <laughs> top five i was wondering where you were going with that and that was really quite something yeah, it's nice oh, well we drew attention to it i know please please go on i'll continue one yeah. look at silence uh, will be enough to convince anyone that christian films can be as confronting as anything else you're likely to find at the cinema well, while they might, what they might lack in gore, they can often make up for in issues that cut straight to the heart. So in our top five this week, Mark is going to take a look at Christian films that provoke every which way imaginable. Shall we get into it? Let's go. Five. Now, I figure any list that starts with provocative Christian films must get the elephant out of the room. Okay, so here we go. Number five. The Passion of the Christ. But you went for that at number five. Uh, because I feel like that that's too obvious. I think I can develop some lines on provocative. <laughs> oh, okay, this. okay. But, that's provocative okay, in itself. So directed by Mel Gibson, starring Jim Cavazil. Uh, it depicts the first, the final twelve hours in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now I feel like I need to say that because we're almost pushing to a point where um, it's not so almost like a generation of filmgoers hmm. won't have come across the Passion of the Christ. You don't and, think? Don't well, you think it still has the same reputation that it had? It has 10 reputation. Years ago or so? I don't think people have watched it. Okay. And and I'll tell you why. Because it is so brutally accurate in the way that Jesus was beaten, scourged, mocked, and ultimately crucified that it provoked critics and viewers alike to scream enough. Okay, And I remember actually um, being incredibly moved by the film and and feeling almost obligated to buy a copy on DVD. And I tell you, that copy is still in its plastic wrapping because I'm not <laughs> sure I could watch it again. You know, it's, it's a very... I watched it twice at the cinemas. It's a very moving, provocative film because it blows away the idea that just Jesus, gentle, meek and mild, floated through this world and didn't engage with it. And when you see the crucifixion and all of its bloody gore, mm. you can't deny that the, here's a man who went to death and back, you mm. know, for the sake of those he was trying to save. Any disagreements on the provocativeness of No, I'm just finding it interesting that it provoked you so much that you bought a copy and it hasn't but that hasn't provoked you to watch it. But it, mm. it's because it's so oh, intimidating. How are you going to top that? Degree. Well, let's see. Four. Yes, The Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> Uh, this list is just provocative. The list now, is provocative. Like, what? Now, Justify say, yourself. I will. I will. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from 2005. Okay, four kids travel through a wardrobe to the land of Narnia and learn of their <laughs> destiny to I'm so free provoked. it from the guidance of a <laughs> mystical lion. And you might be going, what's with that? How provocative is that? But I'll tell you, it is one of those penny drop subtle things. Now, we overlook this because we're Christians. All right. But you've got lots of different ways in this world that you can display God to the outside world. You know, lots of images you might choose. You might choose, you know, um, uh, a majestic eagle or a lovely lamb or a friendly dolphin. And C.S. Lewis, and therefore the film, chose a lion. Dwell on that for a second, okay? If you're going to say God is a lion, you know, you're going to get right at the heart of the fact that God is just not safe. And that's actually hmm. one. It reminds me of that great line in the film. You know, mm. there's this character, Susan. She talks to another character, Beaver. And she says, is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And safe, Mr. Beaver says. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And that's the thing that's important. And I think sometimes we've got to remember that, that, you know, if you were going to draw a picture book with God in it, I don't think you'd pick something that could tear you apart, you know, that is <laughs> That majestic. is provocative. Yeah, so there's an idea that I feel like people can provoke themselves with. Three. So let's get on to something a little more challenging too. You know, there are some films that actually present the idea 
that is provocative at the heart of Christianity. And I figure this is where I'm going to go with my last three films. The sort of ideas that provoke people to annoyance, um, amazement, even anger sometimes. Okay, here at uh, number three is Le Miserable. Okay, why is this a provocative film? Because you've got a film all about this character called Jean Valjean, played by Hugh Jackman, who's convicted of stealing bread and hounded for decades by a cruel policeman, you know, Javert, none other than our own Russ Crowe. For at least New Zealand's yeah. Russ Crowe. But when he wins... Oscars, he's, he's our, our Russell Crowe. Russ Crow. yes. And when he sings, he's there. <laughs> <Then Russ Crow. laughs> <That's right. laughs> In fact, that's this is an incredibly provocative film, not simply because of Crowe's attempt at crowing, but the <laughs> cliche-busting Christian it introduces to the mix. You know, many people are happy to think of Christians as sanctimonious and self-righteous, but the bishop, do you remember the bishop? Mm-hmm. Um, the whole it's pretty plot, pivotal uh, yeah, the whole character. Plot turns on the bishop. We keep thinking it's a story about Jean Valjean, but if the bishop didn't turn up in the middle of it and actually say, you know, in, in front of the police when Jean Valjean steals all the silver, actually I gave it to him, and you forgot the candlesticks as well, please take these um, you know, whatever I can do and then says to him quietly afterwards now God has bought your life and you must behave differently you can't return to darkness you've got to start by taking hold of the grace he's given you and doing something else and everything, everything that happens in the film after that twists on this moment Okay, now for mm. me, um, we would just not react that way if someone, if we invited someone in, maybe we rise to the occasion to see a poor person or someone who's struggling and we, we help them out. If they loot the house, okay, and they're brought back <laughs> by the cops, I think we feel we've done our bit and it's now okay to send them Yeah, we're not prison. usually handing them more. Yeah, we're not saying, no, 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 please. And we're not then saying after them, you know, this is your chance. Okay, and so I feel like that's an idea that provokes and there's more in store. Two. And number three, we really get into that number idea. Number two, you Sorry, mean? Number Mark, two. Number two. You're I... so provoked by your own list, you can't <laughs> even keep up. I was going to extend it. Oh, yeah. no. you Here's me... another three. You'll let me slip in another one. Here's something provocative. Have you seen the film Calvary? Yes. 2014. Mm, great film. Okay. So here's an idea. Um, your your job involves you hearing people's confessions or something like that. There's this priest called um, uh, Father James. He's played by... Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson. Thank you very much. Uh, and his job basically involves hearing other people's confessions. Safe so far. Someone confesses they're going to kill you in seven days. Mm-hmm. And not because you are guilty of anything, but because he so hates the church that he's going to make you responsible You know for what's happened. He was molested as a child, and it's your fault. You're going to be the He's like the symbol of the church at that point. And so you're going to die. Yeah. Uh, and what is so what do you do? Jump in a car? You know, head out of town? Call the police? These are all the things that, that Father James doesn't do. Instead, he spends his time trying to connect with that person. Mark, going about his daily life... Because he doesn't actually know who the person is, does he? Well, actually... We kind of does or kind of doesn't. I don't want to kill that. There's a question about. But that's why he goes around the whole town. He spends like the week in the village talking with people to try to understand if it might be somebody else. I actually think what he does is he goes around the town all the week doing what he would have done as a priest anyway. Mm. It's almost as if his life is in the balance, and instead of somehow making that the issue, he continues to follow his calling as what he should do as a Christian. That's a provocative Christian who doesn't sort of make himself the centre, but still goes about doing what he does. You know, he doesn't give up, doesn't despair, doesn't run. Instead, he, he basically offers grace for those last seven days, right up to the point where she meets the killer. Okay, and then the whole film unrolls. Again, I don't want to give it away because I think it's a brilliant film on the basis that no matter how dark the sins of mankind may be, forgiveness should still be able to trumpet. Hmm. You know, And I think that's... That's something I don't think we're comfortable with in this society at all. We see horrible things happening and we don't go forgiveness. We go justice. Uh, But instead, here's an opportunity to provoke us, you know, our conscience at least. One. Which brings me to number one. Wow. You Given know, you've already gone with Passion of the Christ right, right up what's top, left? what are you going to do? What's left? What could I possibly <laughs> pull out of the hat? I think a film that's been forgotten. Okay, this is one of the best provocative Christian images that's just been almost forgotten, shuffled off. I, I, You couldn't find one in 100 people, oh man, maybe not one in 100, you couldn't find one in 20 people these days who've seen this film. Now, I know this room probably has, but I'd be surprised if many of our listeners have. 
Dead Man Walking from 1995. My wife, Amy, and I watched that two weeks ago. And did you enjoy it? <laughs> we did very much so. Yeah. Now, yeah. most people probably won't have heard of Dead Man Walking because it has shifted off the boil, so to speak. But Susan Sarandon plays this nun who goes to visit a convicted killer on death row, played by Sean Penn. And, emphasize, and, and she ends up empathising with the killer, understanding his problem without... At the, uh, without jumping on board and trying to decide that he's innocent mm. um, and at the same time not trying to condemn him out of hand. It's a very difficult tightrope to walk between loving somebody and still acknowledging that they are evil and need help. Okay, so Penn's character is arrogant and sexist and racist. He's not even pretending to feel any kind of remorse about his crimes. They are brutal and they are disturbing. But Sister Helen won't be provoked. She won't be put off either. She spends the last six days not just being his advocate, but being provocative to him and saying, what are you going to do? You can't find death with their soul this unready. And and in the she deals with the family who have every reason to be upset and still manages to reach some point of grace. The family where, of the victims. Yeah, the you mean, yeah the some victims. of those scenes are incredible. Uh, they're, they're harrowing, and yet there she is at the end, prepared to be the last face of love this killer is going to see. You know, look, it is impossible to watch Dead Man Walking and not be provoked by the unnerving grace the gospel has to offer. That skull robbed me of my only son. You don't know when you see your child lead through a door that you're never going to see them alive again. Do you ever think about those kids? I want to take a lie detector test. I want my mama to know I didn't kill any kids. How can you sit by Ponsolet's side? I like being alone with you. You're looking real good to me. Death is breathing down your neck. You're playing your little mad on the make games. You still got a judge in the federal court that can put a stop to this. I told you I was stoned out of my head. You blame the government, you blame drugs, you blame blacks. Get out of the car! What about Matthew Ponsolent? This is not a person. This is an animal. Well, I got a thing or two to say the person's in the Delacorte. You want your last words to be words of hatred? Pretty provocative list, Mark. I'm amazed that you got all the way through and didn't mention Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. It's but it's we true. did talk about Martin Scorsese's silence a lot during the show. So maybe that's why you left The Last Temptation of Christ off the list. It could also be that I haven't seen it. <laughs> it, could <be> that. <laughs> it could be that. All right, we're at okay. the end of this edition of The Big Picture. But coming up next week, we dare to dive into the explosive subject of racism. That's right. Hidden Figures and Fences are new movies at cinemas about African-Americans affected by prejudice and inequality. Plus, we check out how old and new TV shows dealt with that difference. And next week, I will remain, gentlemen, as always, Ben McKechnie. And I'll still be Mark Hadley. Look forward to seeing you then. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 